0: Reflections on The Theology of the Body by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 3. So God says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, you think God's experimenting? He said, out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field, bird of the air, brought them to man to see what he would call them, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper for him. Now, is this God saying, "Oops, I tried with cattle and birds and so on. It didn't work. No. Again, it's drawing out this solitude. It's preparing the soil for the real encounter. And the preparing of the soil is, is it this? Is it that? You see, the wanting of something that's not there, you see, it has to be awakened like that in a kind of void at first. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep. By the way, I have a very funny joke about this, but I won't tell it right now. This is a solemn moment in our day. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall over the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and brought her to him. And then the man said, and this is the high point of it all, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This at last that at last has to go all the way back to the birth of the universe. It's that important. You see, it's not just that he had to name those animals and then find anybody. It means that human life in this universe Or should I say, proto-christic life in this universe has arrived. This, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, let me read a footnote from the post-work. In biblical anthropology, the term bones expresses a very important element of the body, since for the Jews there was no precise distinction between the body and the soul. They're not Greek philosophers. The body was considered an exterior manifestation of the personality. Bones simply mean the human being. Bone of my bones can therefore be understood in the relational sense as being of my being. This at last is being of my being. This at last is being of my being. Parentheses. Consecrated life. I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. Just another version of the nuptial mystery. And the Pope says, flesh of my flesh means though she has different physical characteristics, the woman has the same personality the man possesses. In the first man's nuptial song, the expression bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh is a form of the superlative. First of all, to call it a nuptial song, this verse, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, being of my being. You want Hosannas. You want the organ. You want the trumpet blast. You want the whole celebration of the created order at that moment. It's the nuptial song. It's the beginning of humanity. And it's superlative. And the implication of that, I think, is that it perhaps another synonym for that would be that it's perfectly exclusive. You cannot imagine Adam saying, "This at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh." And then 10 minutes later, seeing this other little beauty over there and saying, "Oh no, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh, my <laughs> flesh."." It's absolutely exclusive. It's absolutely exclusive. So that's the other part of it. That's why Jesus says, "In the beginning, it was not so, because they became one being. And this is where naïve naturalism completely misses it, because naïve naturalism says, oh, it's sexual arousal, sexual desire, amorous hormones, I don't know what, and therefore it could be stimulated just by somebody else at any moment in a different direction. Sexuality is no doubt that polymorphous, as Freud would say. Nevertheless, sacramentality is not. And that deep yes saying, that deep affirmation of the other, in which you pour your whole being into that relationship, is superlative and unique and exclusive and permanent. So that's why Jesus says you cannot separate the two because it would be an ontological violation of the new being. Paul's notion of the new anthropos, the new humanity, has to be reckoned in terms of this event we're talking about here. You see, Because it is the Christological event taking place millennia before Christ arrives. Or in our day, taking place off to the side of Christianity. But nevertheless, it is the working out in a natural order, in a way, of a Christian truth. And that's why I said before, the guy with the mohawk and the pierced everything, and they're, but they're holding hands? They're going in the right direction. Now, Just a couple of passages from the Pope. He says, Man became the image and likeness of God, not only through his own humanity, but also through the communion of persons, which man and woman form from the beginning. The function of the image is to reflect the one who is the model, to reproduce its own prototype." Man becomes the image of God not so much in the moment of solitude as in the moment of communion. In the image of God He made them, male and female He made them. It's in that moment of communion that we become the image of God because God is Trinitarian intercommunion. The Pope says, When God Yahweh said, It is not good that man should be alone, He affirmed that alone Man does not completely realize his essence. In other words, he doesn't become man. He realizes it only by existing with someone or even more deeply and completely by existing for someone. I have a couple more, but let me go back and talk more specifically about the birth of humanity. One of the ways in which the whole evolutionary thing is unhelpful is that, it implies a kind of segue, a kind of blurred transition from one thing to the next, you see. But there can't have been that. There can't have been that at the cultural level and there can't have been that at the at the existential level or the ontological level. On one day, this creature, one of these higher primates is a higher primate. And when he or she dies, well, That's it. And the next day, that creature is a human being with a soul and engaged in the mystery which is fundamentally the mystery of Christ. Now, what happened in the meantime? How did that come about? God waits. Sexual differentiation waits, waits, builds up Nature is perfected by grace. But I'm going to be silly. Grace waits for nature to be ready you see, and comes in to perfect nature at the place where nature is most perfectible. So there's immense patience while nature produces creatures that have the capacity for self-donation. And they have increasingly, as you go up the evolution of higher primates, they have these characteristics that are so similar to ours. Now, what has to happen is that you have to cross the threshold. And the threshold is from creatures that are only instinctually related to each other to creatures that have experienced self-donation with respect to each other. If that's the threshold... If that's the arc that the spark has to cross, well, it's going to cross it at the narrowest place. Or let's say, if it's going to ford this river between the animal and the human, it's going to ford the river at the narrowest place. You see, it's going to ford the river where the proto human, the pre human, is most predisposed to self donation most capable of making that leap, what would that moment be? The moment of sexual attraction. You see? The moment when nature itself or herself or God's self creates this predisposition for giving oneself to the other. And the Bible goes right to that moment. And we haven't noticed it, but the Pope noticed it. He says, When man, the male, awakening from the sleep of Genesis, saw the female drawn from him, he said, This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. These words express in a way the subjectively beatifying beginning of human existence in this world. Now again, if you were a PhD theologians, you would be It's unbelievable what he's saying. That moment he left out my favorite part of that, that Genesis text, which is the word at last. At last. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and the Pope says that's the moment when humans came into this world. Not because humanity is all about sexual gratification, but because it is in that intimacy of sexual union that we first begin to experience the Christian mystery par excellence, which is the mystery of self-donation. He says further, This beginning belongs to an adequate anthropology and can always be verified on the basis of that anthropology. This purely anthropological verification brings us at the same time to the subject of the person, of the person, and to the subject of body sex. In other words, the anthropology brings us to deal with the person and the mystery of the body and sexuality. And then he says, this simultaneousness is essential. In other words, if you want to understand the person, you've got to understand the body and sexuality. If you want to understand the body and sexuality, you have to understand the person. This is the bedrock of anthropology. If we deal with sex without the person, the whole adequacy of the anthropology which we find in Genesis would be destroyed. For our theological study, the essential light of the revelation of the body, which appears so fully in these affirmations, would then be veiled. You have to see the mystery of sexuality and the meaning of the body in terms of the mystery of the person. The mystery of the person is loving, selfless, self-donation. And the fact that the body is, if you will, hardwired to take us right up to that threshold is what the body is for. The body is already a sort of pre-Christological mystery and miracle. And so what the Pope is talking about is the nuptial meaning of the body. He says it over and over and over again. The nuptial meaning of the body. Now, this moment when Adam said, this at last, is bone of my bones, the beginning of humanity, it has to start there. That is what the Pope calls original innocence. It has to be there. But it only has to last a nanosecond. It doesn't have to last any time at all. And it's very likely that it lasted about a nanosecond. You see what I mean? That doesn't matter. That's not the important thing. What happens a nanosecond later? A nanosecond later, after Adam has said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he thinks to himself, I think some of those other guys have their eye on her. (laughs) You see what I mean? Or I think she'd be great in bed. Or you name it. All of those things. Which suddenly objectify the relationship, rob it of its sacramental meaning, turn it into exploitation or some kind of competitive thing, and then you have all of that brewing hubbub that Father Bob and I always talk about, which leads finally to the sacrificial murder and the birth of culture. You see what I mean? Doesn't take any time at all. But you can't, you have to start with something it happens a nanosecond before all that. And what Christ wants to do is to go back to that. And if we had time and if we were dealing with all these other implications of, of the anthropology, we could show that in the wrecking of the whole sacrificial scene that happens at the cross, that's another way in which Christ is clearing the way for the development of this mystery that is at the beginning, which is the mystery of self-donation, lived out in our sacramental lives of self-donation. The very mystery that, in the course of Christian life, produced the troubadours and the romantic poetry and so on and so forth, which we have betrayed so terribly in our day by eliminating from our understanding of it the mystery of Christianity and the sacramentality of the church and everything else. It's a huge panorama that John Paul has taken in with his reflections. He says, Awareness of the meaning of the body, in particular its nuptial meaning, is the fundamental element of human existence in the world. This nuptial meaning of the human body can be understood only in the context of the person. The body has a nuptial meaning because the human person can fully discover his true self only in a sincere giving of himself. End quote. And this nuptial meaning of the body really is a pre-credal Christian experience. If the Christian experience par excellence is loving self-donation, the nuptial meaning of the body is that. I quoted... Coventry Patmore. Patmore says if we want to really understand ourselves we have to believe with this incredibly robust faith of the church and of the saints and what we have to believe in most emphatically is the full mystery of the incarnation. So what the Pope is trying to do is to use the epistemological power of the gospel to think about who we are and how we came to be. So where where does he go? Does he go to some kind of archaeology? No, he goes to the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says, in the beginning it was not so. Oh, what's he talking about? Genesis. Let's go to Genesis. And he realizes that there you have, certainly you don't have some sort of rational explanation, but you have all of the literary suggestions to take you to a new understanding of the mystery of humanity. I mean, it's really quite a, an exercise in reorganizing the scriptural data. And if you've read it, you sense that there's nothing forced about it, that it's a real journey of learning, that it's you start here and you go there, and that takes you here and there, and you go here, and you just follow this out, and then you open your mind to the possibilities, and you consult your own experience and the experience of humanity as you know it, and voila, you have an understanding of humanity that you could not have gotten without these scriptural things. The Pope will say the primary sacrament is matrimony. Matrimony is the conjoining of two self-donating creatures. This is humanity. So that's the primary sacrament. It's the primary Christian sacrament because it's the beginning of Christian life. Christian life is self-donation. So the nuptial sacrament is not just one of the seven. It's an overarching sacramental reality. So what I was saying is these ontological shifts are very often palpable emotionally or even cognitively, but they're not that often visible. The sacraments make them visible. They celebrate them. They nourish them. They inform them. You see, the sacramental life of the church informs us about what it means to be confirmed or to be married or to receive holy orders. You see, we understand that we're now undergoing something here that is fundamental. It's not just a new career <laughs> or something. I think codependence has gotten a bad name. <laughs> I mean there are bad forms of it, <laughs> but there's, something could be said for codependence. <laughs> the damask glove seat is in a dangerous room. <laughs> You know, diseased versions of this simply don't disprove its existence, they prove its existence. There are plenty of terrible examples of it, but only probably because we're predisposed to something like that. I suppose the anthropological question would be, why are we predisposed to that? And we're probably predisposed to that because we're fundamentally predisposed to the healthy version of it. Some of those terrible stories I was telling before lunch are shocking to us, viscerally, even if we're not totally aware of it. They're shocking to us because we realize the preciousness of what's being violated. It's not just because it's immoral or something. What John Paul wants to do is to get beyond moralizing and say, look, we're talking about the structure of humanity and the possible betrayal of our own humanity. And therefore, we're talking about the anthropological bedrock and not about just moral quibbles we have with each other. So we are predisposed to a kind of Codependence, And what we don't notice is that there are lots of really incredibly wonderful, healthy versions of it. That's why I say sort of in a flippant way that it's gotten a bad name. There are wonderful versions of it and diseased versions of it. I do have a couple more things. I'm, I wanted to say some happy things, you know. <laughs> but I'm going to save the happy things. Can I just do one more thing before we go? The Pope quotes Genesis, the punishment for the sin. To the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Yet, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. One of the things that happens after the nanosecond, you know, the nanosecond, you have this at last, and then the melodrama, the soap opera, begin. If you have a relationship that's objective and in some sense utilitarian and it's bipolar, I don't mean that in a psychiatric way, if it's a bipolar relationship, it will be absolutely unstable. And this has to do with understanding about mimesis and some other things. It's another, takes us too far afield. But it will be unstable. Simply a bipolar relationship is unstable an emotional relationship that's bipolar is unstable because there will always be some kind of well I gave in last time you didn't give in last it's your turn or it's my, I didn't get my you didn't do this I did that Which not something's not being equal so it's always the fight never ends so if you have a bipolar relationship that's simply bipolar and there's nothing beyond it it's totally unstable and it will fly apart in no time the only way to keep it bipolar and stable is to make it hierarchical. One rules the other. It's the only way to keep it stable. People who think that they can have equality without transcendence are joking. What is stable about a Christian marriage is it's Trinitarian. It's triangular. You see, there's the man, the woman, and God, Christ, the church. That transcendent dimension And that our relationship is simply the domestic church. The phrase the domestic church is not some saccharine analogy. It's a real truth. To the extent that there's loving self-donation, we are a domestic church. To the extent that there's a loving self-donation that we share with our children, we have become a domestic church. But it's because we are in relationship to each other because we are in relationship to Christ. Our marriage and our family is in the context of a transcendence which is Christian. There you have, and only there, only when you have some form of transcendence can you possibly have a relationship that is both equal and stable. And what you have in the Genesis story is the abandonment of that transcendence. Adam and Eve saying, Thank you, God, we'll take it from here. You see? And then, as soon as you're cut off, it says, he will rule over you. Now, we can understand that in terms of anthropology. That simply happens. Who's going to rule? Who's the strongest? Physically the strongest. Comes to power. Nietzsche was right on that score. Who's the strongest? For the most part, the man. He will rule over you. That's what happens in fallen humanity. Now, what the Pope notices is that it says, your desire will be for your husband. And what John Paul says is, the way to understand that is that the woman who has a special gift for self-donation, because in fact she is made with maternal instincts and with a special predisposition for relationality. So in a situation where relationality has eroded, she will be the first to suffer from that. She will be the first to feel the disappointment when the relationship is destroyed. And so she will desire her husband. What John Paul says is, what that means is, she will desire another kind of relationship than the objective, impersonal one that has come to be. You see? He will rule over you, because without transcendence it, it has to be hierarchical in order to be stable. And you will desire Him, but what you will desire is another kind of relationship with Him than the one you have, which is objective and hierarchical and religiously insignificant. I think that's tremendous because it recognizes exactly how we humans are. It recognizes that the men do usually have more power and the women are the ones who suffer more from the absence of relationality. And so this is what comes from being somebody like John Paul. He reads this text and he sees things in it that we couldn't see. And he draws our attention to it. The last thing I want to say before we take a break is just a quick thing about Jesus talking about adultery in the heart. He says, if you've looked lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. This is a radical change of everything. Jesus is simply relocating the question of sin from behavior to the heart. He wants to talk about the heart. Now what does it mean to commit adultery with someone in your heart? It means that you're looking lustfully. Lust means objectively this person looks like they would satisfy my sexual desires. It's not a question of being attracted in some way that is attracted to the person, but simply attracted to a sexual gratification. If you do that, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And what the Pope said, and I remember when he first said it years ago, the secular journalist had a heyday laughing at him. He said, if a husband looks at his wife lustfully, meaning by lust a kind of self-gratifying, objective gratification of my sexual desires with no real connection with the communio personarum, the mystery of the person, but simply looks at his wife as a possible object of sexual gratification. He has committed adultery with her. And you can imagine what the secular journalists did with that. They had a... The Pope declares that the man who looks lustfully at his wife has committed adultery. Oh, It's a tremendous insight. Because it's a recognition that this breakdown of relationality can happen, often happens, in married life. Tremendously powerful thing. After we take a break, I want to say a few words about the Pope's reflections on celibacy and then share with you uh, a couple of poems that open out a little bit. Give us a little promise, I think. Well, I think that I have touched the essential point painting with a very broad brush, but there are so many nuances and details, each of which deserve our attention. But I haven't had time to do that, and I have a couple of things I want to say here at the beginning, and then say a few words of a positive nature about the future. Not so much, well, about the future, but about hope, basically. I mentioned that this moment which Genesis describes in passing as Adam saying, this at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Being of my being is the moment of the birth of humanity, and the Pope affirms that. But then all you need is a nanosecond for that to happen, and then you can never go back. Then you're already over the threshold. You're into the human experience. And nothing short of that will ever be satisfying again. So if the soap opera starts a nanosecond later and you start competing with other people and jockeying for position and trying to figure out how to satisfy your own sexual desires at the expense of whoever, and so on, of all those games that are played, they will be, as uh, the famous Mick Jagger told us, they will result in no satisfaction, because that's the only thing that is satisfying, is loving self-donation. And once you've experienced it, you can't go back. There's no going back. You can't forget that you've been there. John Paul refers to a passage in First John very interestingly and creatively. And it's this passage in the second chapter. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and then he catalogs all that is in the world, By the way, you understand here, the world does not mean the natural order. It does not mean the material universe. The world means a mindset, you see. So the world is that way of thinking that is basically oriented around self-gratification. So that's what the world is. This is not some kind of Manichaean or Gnostic contempt for the material order. Quite the contrary. But if you love the world and the things of the world, the love to the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and in the catalog of things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And John Paul Focuses on this passage: the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Very interestingly, he says, "Is it a coincidence that?" And this shows that he's a professor at the University of Krakow before he became Pope. What Paul Ricoeur, an important philosopher-theologian, calls the masters of suspicion. The masters of suspicion. Are essentially the master architects of the modern and postmodern world, thought world, and they are Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx. And again, showing how fruitful John Paul's thinking is, and something about his own erudition, he said, "Is it a coincidence that this catalog—the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life—has striking correlation?" with the work of these three masters of suspicion. They're called masters of suspicion because what they say is, you can't trust us at all. We're always being prompted by ulterior motives. We humans are fundamentally selfish, and there's no getting around it. And so you just have to deal with that fact. What John Paul says is, the lust of the flesh has a correlation in the work of Freud. And the lust of the eyes correlates with the work of Marx, because the lust of the eyes has to do with envy and seeing these things that you want, these material objects that you want to possess, you see. And that brings in the whole problem of the master-slave and the whole problem of the, the warfare of the classes and certain people having and certain people not having. And of course, the pride of life is the whole Nietzschean idea, if you're familiar at all with Nietzsche's idea. I think that's tremendously powerful, but there's another set of analogs that we could think about there. I think it's appropriate for him to go to 1 John. But the lust of the flesh might correlate with simply animal appetite, simply hormones and bodily sexual attraction, sexual arousal at the, at the physical level. Lust of the eyes correlates, I think, with what people like Father Bob and I call mimetic desire, which is the Girardian term for a desire that is awakened by the desires of others. So we see others desiring or having some object, and we think, oh, that would be nice to have. And It never occurred to us that that would be nice to have until we saw that they wanted it or have it. So the lust of the eyes is not appetite. I don't wake up and think, oh, I want that. I just see somebody and then I want it. And the pride of life might correlate to the more intense melodrama that develops as a result of mimetic desire and the conflict that it generates. The pride of life is when I am now much more concerned with my competitor than I am with the object of our mutual desire. In other words, my pride of life has to be puffed up because I have to outdo this competitor that is now vying with me for this object. And slowly but surely, I'm much less interested in the object per se than I am with outdoing my competitor in my attempt to acquire it. So there may be many other ways in which we could break down this catalog that the Pope calls our attention to. But I think it's quite helpful to see there Something like a rough schema of what happens to us when we fall back from that glorious moment when we self-donate without reservation and completely and when we fall back into these other things. And then we are living in the world, as the author of 1 John says, and we do not know the mystery of the Father. I want to say a quick word, although I should probably have done much more of this today, on celibacy. All of this comes to us, as I've said several times today already, from the pen of the world's most famous celibate. And it's very powerful to hear him out on that question because he says things that make it perfectly clear that he knows the mystery of the relationship between the man and the woman. One needn't express that mystery in a conjugal way in order to experience it. As a matter of fact, moving too quickly to some kind of conjugal consummation of it destroys the mystery. You have to remember now, it's very hard, you know, when you look at him now and he just seems like this old man, but what a striking and handsome and robust young man he was. And how brilliant, and what a playwright, and what an actor. I mean, it was all the things that Hollywood celebrates when he was a young man. Clearly, he has had experience, not sexual experience, but experience recognizing that we're engendered beings and that when we have relationships with one another, our gender contributes to the context and the texture of our relationship. And it's a very wonderful powerful gift and he evokes that in the writing. So that's to be said. But more importantly, he goes to the gospel again and Jesus is asked about, it's a set up job again, the question about the woman who married the seven brothers and when she died, who's the husband and he, Jesus sees this coming. And so he says in the next life there's neither marriage nor given in marriage. Now, I don't want you people who are married to think that you won't run into each other in the next life. (laughs) Because what God has joined together, you see. What Jesus is talking about primarily is that in this life, our engendering in our marriage has to do with bringing children into the world and procreation and all of that. And that's not part of the next life, you see. So that's not part of it. It doesn't mean we're not going to be connected to the people that we love. But he dismisses their little ploy, which is really just a little ploy. It's stupid. And so he dismisses it. And his disciples are concerned about that because so they say, in that case, it's not expedient to marry since it's a temporary thing. Jesus then has that thing about the eunuchs. Eunuchs meaning people who do not, for whatever reason, have sex sexual relationship. There are eunuchs that have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. They've been castrated. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to receive this, let him receive it. So, Jesus is not like some Gnostic who's going to say, you're right. Don't give in to your sexual impulses. All of that is nasty. Bad, you see you should be spiritual and not bodily, that's absolutely antithetical to the gospel, but Jesus says, some are called to being celibate for the kingdom. Well, it's not up to me to try to explicate that for you. Father Bob can explicate this after I leave and other your other priest friends, but there are some things for the kingdom and the church is the preparation for the kingdom. That is to say, to be a celibate in the interest of the kingdom is to represent the eschatological future here and now. That is to say, not to have progeny, not to leave a legacy behind, not to do what is done in ordinary course of family life to create this ongoing legacy, but to do the radical thing and to represent the eschatological future here and now. All of us Christians are called to be eschatological witnesses. We're called to witness to the eschatological truth, the truth that's beyond the horizon of history, the truth about the world beyond this one. One of the things we're called to is to bear witness to that. But the priest of the church bears witness to that in a unique way, in that he leaves no legacy, has no legacy in that sense, is simply a representative of the eschatological truth here and now. At the same time, he is freed up for a kind of relationship with the people of God that is intensified by his availability, by virtue of the fact that he is not covenanted to another, but simply to Christ and to the church and to its people. So it's a tremendous giving of one's life in the same way that marriage is the giving of one's life to the spouse, the consecrated life, Is a nuptial self donation to Christ, to the body of Christ, and the people of God. And it's a tremendous witness, as all of us know. And the thing you hear people saying, well, this is ridiculous. Vocations are diminishing. We should do away with this and that. that." Well, there are plenty of ways for us married people to serve the church. We should all take advantage of that. But the witness that comes to us from a celibate life is absolutely unique. To say that we should do away with that is to say that it is passé. If it is passé, what are you going to do with Christ? What are you going to do with Jesus? You see what I mean? Why didn't Jesus get married? Oh, well, I don't know. I guess He was the Son of God. What do we have there? We have an example there of total self-donation. And the priest is for us the alter Christus. Now, this is the other thing. One of the things you have to remember about John Paul is that he was a poet, a playwright, and an actor in his youth. And that is not unrelated to the fact that like no one else, in the latter half of the 20th century, in the beginning of the 21st, he has taken the world stage with unbelievable power. Now, is that because he's a show-off? No. He knows that his task as the shepherd of the church is to mediate. He knows his job is a job of mediation. Remember I started with that quotation from Chavot, who says, it's not being an intermediary like the priests of the Old Covenant. It's a question of mediation. So one mediates, as John Paul has done so magnificently on the world stage, mediates the Christian mystery to the world. And in a local way, exactly what our priests do. They give their lives and step into that charism (laughs) at the altar and elsewhere uh, to mediate for us the Spirit of Christ. So there's a lot of celebration of that in the Pope's book and I hardly touch on it, but because so much of what I talked about today seemed to be only about the amorous quality of the nuptial mystery, I I, want to say that. Apropos of that, perhaps, also, is what I think is one of the most interesting distinctions and helpful distinctions that the Pope makes, and that is the distinction between excitement and emotion. I think it's a very helpful distinction. He says excitement is corporeal and sensual, and it has to do directly with the masculinity or femininity of the other. In other words, it's arousal. Emotion has to do with the person of the other in its relationship to her femininity or his masculinity. They're always together. The excitement and the emotion, you can't separate them. If excitement, that is to say simply the arousal, is allowed to eclipse the emotion, everything is lost. The emotion will never eclipse the arousal because it's part of it. The arousal simply is attracted because of the sexual nature of this creature. Emotion is awakened because of the personal dimension of that other, you see. It's an engagement with the person that is at the same time intensified by the sexual differentiation. I think that's a tremendously helpful distinction to make between excitement which is corporeal and sensual, and emotion which is fundamentally personal. And I'll just read you one paragraph toward the end of Theology of the Body. He says, excitement seeks above all to be expressed in the form of sensual and corporeal pleasure. That is, it tends towards the conjugal act which, depending on the natural cycles of fertility, includes the possibility of procreation. On the other hand, Emotion, caused by another being as a person, even if its emotive content is conditioned by the femininity and masculinity of the other, does not per se tend toward the conjugal act. But it limits itself to other manifestations of affection, which express the spousal meaning of the body and which nevertheless do not include its potential procreative meaning. Now, to me this is a charming passage because you feel in it the Pope's own life experience. That it does not, per se, lead to the conjugal act, but it limits itself to other manifestations of affection which express the spousal meaning of the body nevertheless. Again, it's the recognition on the part of a celibate that the life of all of us, whether married or single or celibate, is enriched by our gender, our sexual differentiation. That is part of the texture of our relationship. And to the extent that it enriches our relationship so much the better. I said I was going to quote David Schindler. Schindler is the editor of Communio. And he wrote a piece in Communio a couple of years ago in which he said, There is no genuine experience of meaning in life that does not begin with the foundational experience of falling in love with something or someone. And there is no reasonable proof that can bypass this foundational experience of falling in love. No experience of the meaning of life that does not begin with the foundational experience of falling in love with something or someone. Now, I just want to end with one piece of folksy wisdom we could talk for a few minutes, but this is von Balthasar. There's some comic elements to it, but I read it because really the whole point of the Pope's work is that attending maturely and joyfully and creatively to our sexuality and our relationships with each other is an essential part of Christian faith, that it's not just some little aspect over here that has to be guarded around with rules and regulations, but it really is an essential part of our faith. And there's a hint of that here in von Balthasar in a kind of a practical way, talking about sexual morality. He said, for the non-Christian, Morals can change depending on the cultural constellations obtaining at a particular moment. On one occasion, it is the fashion to erect great taboos around sexual covetousness, consequently, making the matter more adventurous and interesting. And then there comes a time when one destroys the magic of these taboos with a great shout of triumph, and this gives men a sense of enormous freedom, of being very enlightened. But the thing itself becomes much more boring and eventually one is completely fed up with it. The shorter the skirts, the less exciting the legs. This comes to you from another famous celibate. The shorter the skirts, the less exciting the legs. <laughs> Fashion designers will have to bring out something new if they are to turn up the thermostat on our eroticism. But this merry-go-round cannot impinge in any real sense on the Christian. His own sexual behavior would be for him and for the world around him a witness equally as remarkable and offensive as his faith itself. For both his sexual behavior and his faith are part of the same indivisible whole. His sexual behavior is part of his faith. End quote. Mm-hmm. And I think that and a number of other things that von Balvizar has written converge quite powerfully with the popes, and I'm sure the pope has been inspired by them because I know he's a reader of von Balthasar. I think as a final comment, I, I wanted to say what I've said several times already, and that is that the great value, I think, long-term value of what the pope has done is that he has changed the terms of discourse. He has said to us, What's at stake is not morality. Certainly that's at stake. But to address the crisis that's upon us simply that way will not do. It won't work, and it does not take us to the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is our humanity, and the heart of our humanity is its Christological dimension. That is to say, it's invitation to self-donation. And our sexuality is a very powerful predisposition in that regard, and it has to be understood in those anthropological terms and defended in those anthropological terms and sacramentally enshrined and elevated precisely because of that anthropological centrality. This concludes Reflections on the Theology of the Body, by Gil Bailey. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.